Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. Uh, Tonight, it is my special privilege to introduce, many of you already know, our young adult intern, Chase Reed. I've had the privilege of working with Chase for several months now. Chase is a uh, graduate from Lancaster uh, Bible College, and he is currently enrolled in their Masters of Divinity program. Chase is um, sort of pursuing a call to the pastorate, and this uh, internship that he's part of with me is, is an opportunity for him to exercise some of those skills and to sort of clarify his sense of calling. Now, Chase has not yet committed to the PCA, but he's leaning in that direction. But we are giving him the opportunity to bring God's Word to you tonight, and let me just tell you, it has been a privilege working with Chase. Uh, he loves God. He, love, he loves God's people. He's been a joy to minister with. Um, it, because he's doing an internship, uh, he, he has some extra things that he's doing. Uh, he gets some credits over at Lancaster Bible College. And, you know, Chase doesn't just want to do the bare minimum. He wants to do a little bit more than the minimum. And so tonight I said, Chase, do you just want to preach and, or do you want to lead part of the service? So he's going to lead uh, much of the service and so I'm going to turn it over to Chase. All right, well, good evening, everyone. Pastor Kiefer, thank you for the wonderful introduction. I just want to start by saying I'm so thankful and grateful that I can have this opportunity to preach the Word of God this evening and to, to sing with you all and hear your beautiful voices as we praise the one true God. So as you know, we're going through our sermon series for the evening services on the patriarchs of Israel. And at the moment, we're learning about Father Abram. For those who were not here last week, Pastor York covered the second half of Genesis chapter 12. In the first first half of the chapter, God makes his covenant with Abram. He promises him three things, blessing, land, and offspring. In the second half, Abram travels with his family to Egypt. Unfortunately, Abram commits a serious sin by lying to the Pharaoh, telling him that Sarai, his wife, is his sister. Of course, this leads to a great mess involving Pharaoh trying to take Sarai as his wife and God afflicting Pharaoh for taking a woman who was already married to another man. Pharaoh then calls out Abram for his sin and sends him and his family away out of Egypt. Thankfully, God shows his mercy to Abram and keeps him in his covenant. So today, our passage is Genesis 13. Feel free to turn there in your own Bibles or in your Bible apps. So starting in verse 1 of chapter 13, we read, So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first, And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. 
Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all of the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Let us pray. Most gracious and heavenly Father, Lord, we have heard from your word. God, we ask that this word would, would pierce our hearts. Lord, let it convict us and shape us more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that all who would hear this message would leave knowing the gospel, that they would see your sovereignty in this passage and walk away knowing that in their lives as well, you are sovereign and that your promises are firm. Be with us, O Lord. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. So as I've said, this evening we're continuing to look at the early parts of the story of Abram. So some time has passed between this last chapter and our current one. The author writes that Abram and his family have departed from Egypt and with all of their belongings. And the chapter states that they headed into the land of the Negev, which is an area in southern Israel. It's a, it's a desert land. Now at first glance, this may seem like one of those mo more boring passages in Genesis. There are no talking serpents, no floods washing over the earth, no towers being built into heaven. No, instead, this chapter gives us a, a simple narrative, a short story of two groups ruled by two friends coming into conflict with each other, seeking a proper resolution that would benefit both of their peoples. A person who is unfamiliar with the story of Abram might ask, what could possibly be gained by, by paying attention to a story like this? Can't I just skim over it and get back to the, the cool and more applicable stories of the Bible? But truth be told, when I, when I first approached this passage, I came at it with a very similar attitude. But what I came to realize is that woven throughout this passage, throughout this story, is an underlying theme of the power and assurance in God's promises. And friends, isn't it true that God often displays the magnificent truths of who he is in the ordinary day-to-day -day motions of our own lives? Because that's exactly what we see here in Genesis 13. This short story of Abram interacting with his nephew Lot reminds us that the promises of God will enable us to make worthy sacrifices and preserve that which truly benefits us. Hear this again. The promises of God enable us to make worthy sacrifices and preserve that which truly benefits us and his kingdom. So let's keep this idea in mind as we unpack the narrative that we've just read. 
So if you haven't already, I I invite you to turn with me to Genesis 13. And something to, to note before we dive into the text is that we're given three key ideas in this chapter of what God's promises enable us to do. And they are as follows. The first that we see in verses one through nine is that God's promises enable us to give our comfort and assurance up, or sorry, our comfort and convenience up. The second is that the promises of God enable us to avoid temptation and destruction. And third, the promises of God enable us to rest in his overall plan for his people. Our first section of our story, as I've said in verses 1 through 9, focus on this idea of sacrifice. We see all throughout scripture that those who look to God as their savior and not to themselves are able to sacrifice what they hold dearly on earth so that way they can instead receive what the Lord has for them. In this chapter, Abram is shown to be a very wealthy man. Although he has sinned in Egypt by lying about his wife in the previous chapter, Abram was still faithful to God, and the Lord blessed him in order that Abram would then bless others in his own caravan and around the nations around them. The the text states that Abraham specifically had livestock and precious metals such as silver and gold. So our minds, when we think of this, we should be picturing not just a man and his wife and their nephew, but a whole caravan of people and property and livestock all of them traveling from Egypt to the Negev and eventually coming to a place between the lands of Bethel and Ai in Israel. The text also tells us that Abram and his caravan are back where God first made a covenant with him. And verse 4 states that the first thing he does is make an altar to the Lord to worship him and call upon him at this point in the journey. As any parent in the audience knows, for almost every road trip or traveling experience, you always, when you plan it, there's bound to be something that goes wrong along the way. Could be your spouse gets sick, your children leave some articles of clothing at home, or in my own experience, your truck catches fire while you're on a camping trip. True story. In a similar way, Abram and Lot, who are both in charge of their own workers and their herds, they start to experience problems. The Bible uses the word strife, to emphasize and communicate this tension that's building between Abram's herd and Lot's herd. And that's not the only issue, of course. The author tells us that the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the pagan nations in the area, they were dwelling in the land as well. And they could easily overwhelm and attack Abram's caravan if they weren't careful. So Abram, being the leader, has a lot of pressure to make a decision, not not only to solve the frustration and the strife between the two groups of herdsmen, but also not to get everyone killed by an invading force. Now, one might expect that, since this is in the ancient times, that Abram would simply act with an iron fist, that he would act as a dictator, telling the herdsmen, stop your arguing, unless they want to be punished by death or other punishments. Maybe he would force his nephew Lot to go find some other land to live in. Maybe he would send men to the Canaanites as ambassadors and to the Perizzites and strike a deal with these pagan societies. But no, Abram doesn't do anything of the sort. He says in verse 8 and 9 of our text, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. So instead of ruling with an iron fist, 
Abram yields up his authority to God. And he allows Lot to separate from him and choose whatever land he wants. Now, Abram did not have to do this, but his faith in God guided him to trust that God would work through Lot to decide the matter. And this, my friends, is what we call a true sacrifice. Abram has all of his property, even his family, at stake. But instead of trusting in his own wisdom and strength, he yields his rights, his authority, to God. In the New Testament, we see a similar situation to this when the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthian church how he yielded his own rights as a Christian citizen. He says in 1 Corinthians 9.15, But I, Paul, have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. You see, Paul could have gotten married to Um, a wonderful Christian woman, had a family, a loving family. He could have used his rights as a Roman citizen to settle down, buy a nice property, to raise his family there. But instead, he yields these rights that he's earned for a greater purpose, to spread the gospel so that others would know that Christ died for them. And if Paul can do this, if he can give that up, then certainly we ourselves can examine our own lives and can find areas in our life where we can sacrifice for those around us to bless them. Now, that doesn't exactly mean we have to drop everything right now and move to India or China and spread the gospel, although some are called to do that. But sometimes what it looks like is just having a a friend over who's struggling, have them come over to your house and give them a meal and pour into them. Or maybe it's offering one day a week to volunteer at a local food pantry to support others in your neighborhood. So I ask you all, with your knowledge of what God has done for you, what can you sacrifice for others in order that they may know the riches of Christ? To sacrifice what we rightly deserve or are owed is truly what it means to take up our cross daily to deny ourselves. So as we've read in our passage today of Abram yielding his decision of where to take his herds, his family, and his property, to his nephew Lot, yielding that decision to him, understand that in reality, Abram is yielding all of what he has to the will and the promises of the Lord his God. It certainly wasn't a comfortable decision, nor was it convenient for him. But Abram trusted in the promises of God, nevertheless. So in our first section, as as we move on to verses 10 to 13, we've seen that the promises of God enable us to give up our comfort and convenience. In the second section, verses 10 to 13, we see that the promises of God enable us to avoid temptation and destruction. So far, Abram has made a tough decision and has yielded his choice to Lot in our narrative. Lot then has to choose what area of land that he'll take his herds and belongings to. The author of the story writes in verses 10 to 11. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. So we're not given too many details um, of how Lot goes about choosing this, how he reacts to Abram's faithful decision. He doesn't start off by thanking Abraham, nor does he ask the Lord first or or pray to the Lord. 
to discern what he should choose or where he should go, but he simply looks out to the land and he chooses which part of the land looks best to his eyes. Instead of walking by faith, Lot literally walks by sight. He makes his decision by sight. He sees this beautiful land full of resources and even compares it to the Garden of Eden. And how beautiful was it? And he compares it to the prospering lands of Egypt that they had just left. Now, we might be thinking, well, of course, Lot should have picked this land. That sounds like a great deal. But take a look at the note in verse 13 that the author includes here. The land certainly was rich, but the people who inhabited it were wicked, ungodly people in Sodom and Gomorrah. We read in later chapters of Genesis that the people of Sodom and Gomorrah committed acts such as sexual deviance, exploitation of the weak, theft, murder, and many other grievous sins against their common man. We also read later on that this would become a problem for Lot as Abram then has to travel to Sodom and Gomorrah and to rescue his nephew. And then God ends up destroying Sodom and Gomorrah as we read in this note uh, due to their failure to repent of their terrible sins. So the biggest issue with Lot allowing his eyes to be the ones that make this decision and decide where he takes his herd is that he ends up not using his brain to just take a second and think, to discern and seek God whether his decision will impact not just himself, but the people that he is in charge of. And by taking his group to the Jordan Valley near the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot is risking not just his people from walking away from God, but also risking his own faith. I mean, let's put it this way. Imagine for a moment that you have a friend who used to struggle with alcoholism. And this friend, his birthday's coming up soon, and you want to take him out uh, and his family out for a night and treat him to a nice meal. Now imagine you go up to this friend who struggled with alcoholism and you say, Hey, for your birthday, I'm thinking of taking you to the new bar in the city. It's really big. All the papers are talking about it. I, I think we should go. Now, does that sound wise to take a former alcoholic to a new bar? Well, unless you're trying to reignite his addiction and cause him to stumble and to sin, of course not. But that's what it was like to walk by mere faith, I mean, walk by mere sight and not by faith as Lot does here. And when we do that, we run the risk of inviting unwanted temptation in our own lives or sometimes in the lives of, the lives of those that we love. So what does God's promise have to do with this? Well, because God knew that Lot would choose the better looking land and walk by sight, Abram is prevented from going into the Jordan Valley and being affected by the people of Sodom and Gomorrah and to be tempted by them. And remember that it's Abram, not Lot, who is the one who is given the promise of his offspring and generations. By going to Canaan, God enables this promise to come to fruition as we read throughout the rest of the Old Testament. You see, when Abram deferred his choice to Lot, when he deferred his right to choose that he had, God recognized this act of faith and honored his promise, preventing Abram from falling into even more temptation than what we read about in chapter 12. What a wonderful example of our Lord's sovereignty. And the good news is that God does the same for all of those who are in Christ today. The Apostle Paul again writes in 1 Corinthians, this time in chapter, 12, uh, chapter 10, verses 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. 
God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. Here again, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Brothers and sisters, if temptation is a regular struggle for you, whatever it may be, I simply tell you, turn to God first. Do not be like Lot and merely walk through life, giving in to every pleasurable vice that comes your way or that you see with your eyes, but instead cling to the promises of God. Cling to the promise that Paul writes that God will not let temptation overtake you, but reach out to other Christian men and women who can help you and experience the freedom and the joy that comes with overcoming temptation by clinging to the promises of God. And when you do fall in temptation, because we do, return to God as Abram did. After sinning in Egypt, Abram didn't reject his faith, but instead he asked forgiveness and offered worship to God. So let us do likewise. And again, remind ourselves that standing on the promises of God allow us to avoid temptation and destruction. In the third and final section of our passage, verses 14 to 18, after all is said and done and the hard decisions of Abram and Lot are made, God himself takes center stage. It's here that we find the third principle of the promises of God, which is that they enable us to rest in the plan of God. In verses 14 through 17, we read that God speaks to Abraham and he says, The Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. By doing this, God demonstrates the closeness that he desires with his people. He could have let Abram continue his business as usual, but instead God does something incredibly comforting for him. He reaffirms the promise of the covenant that he had made with Abram just a chapter earlier. For just a moment, place yourself in Abram's shoes. He's just gone through an extremely stressful situation where lives were at stake. Property was at stake. The future was at stake, both in his own camp and in Lot's. All of the people were looking to him to solve the problem, and he gave the final say to his inexperienced nephew. Surely, Abram would have had some doubts or feelings of anxiety lingering after this. But God takes the time to remind Abram that his plan and his will, the Lord's, shall come to pass no matter what. And based on what God says in verse 17, here he states, I, the Lord, will give this land to you. The Lord demonstrates that even when Lot was making his choice of land with merely his eyes, using no discernment, that God was in complete control. And this fact enables Abram to finally rest after all is said and done. And not only that, but Abram now has another testimony of, the, of God's goodness that will allow him to look back upon as he faces the trials and temptations of life as the patriarch of God's people. But God doesn't just stop there as he often does. He doesn't just want Abram to remember the promise that he has made with him. 
He also wants Abram to tangibly see and experience the land which God says he will grant to his offspring. He tells Abram to walk along the perimeter of the land and to truly take in the fact that this will belong to those descended from him. This picture that the author portrays for us is identical to the promises that Christ has made for us as his people. And similar in the fact that God also allows us to see and experience what he has in store for us. In John 14, 3, uh, Jesus says, he has gone to prepare a place for us, a promised land, just like that of Abram, except this land will be eternal and infinitely more beautiful and more restful than even what Abram experiences, more than any field or mountain or valley, more beautiful than any of that. And as we wait until the day that when we get to glorify God for all eternity, he's given us our very own tangible reminders of his promise. The three that come to mind most of all for most of the church body, the first is the church body herself. And the second is the sacrament of baptism. And the third, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. As we spend time with the body of believers, we're getting a glimpse of, of the people that we'll get to worship God with, the people that we'll get to love and to work in heaven and the new earth. Likewise, when we are baptized or when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we're given a tangible reminder of the work of God in Jesus Christ. You see, folks, when God makes a promise, he doesn't just invisibly carry it through with it, but he also gives us a glimpse of the end result with assurance that we can rest and that his promises are sure and true. So when doubts are descending upon you, look not to your own righteousness or your own good works or the wisdom of your own decisions, but look to, look to the righteousness of Christ. Look instead to the work of God in the church body and in the sacraments, which tangibly say to us, God is faithful to those in his covenant. And once we take hold of these promises and reminders from God, we are called to act in accordance with them, to obey him. We see in the final verses how Abram responds to hearing the voice of his Lord and the reaffirmation of God's promises. We see that he moves his tent to the Oaks of Mamre and he settles there. Abram concludes the events of the chapter with one simple act of humility. He builds an altar to the Lord to offer up worship. This altar then becomes a place of thankfulness and right worship. It's a place where all of those in Abram's caravan and all of those who live in the surrounding areas can be reminded of God's promise to those in his covenant. So as we come to a close, we see clearly in this passage the sovereignty of God and the trustworthiness of his promises. And these promises are not just words that are uttered out of one's mouth that disappear like a vapor in the cold. Instead, the promises of God are active words which enable us to make worthy sacrifices like Abram and preserve that which truly benefits us and his kingdom. And the good news is that we are not alone in making such sacrifices. But Jesus Christ lived and died and rose again as the greatest sacrifice for our sins. And he told his disciples that all who are saved by grace through faith shall inherit the greater promised land, more beautiful than any land on earth. We shall inherit the new heavens and the new earth where all is made new, where sins have been forgiven 
and we will get to experience a greater rest than even Abram experienced in the land as we glorify God and remain satisfied with him for all eternity. So as we keep these promises in view, I urge you all to ask yourselves, what can I sacrifice for the good of my neighbor? Ask yourselves, how can I begin to trust in the promises of God when I face temptation? And lastly, ask yourselves, am I actually resting in the fact that Jesus has died, has risen again, and that he's coming again for me, that I may have promises, that I may have rest and peace in the promises of God? Am I actually resting in that fact? If any of you have been wrestling with these questions or are wondering what the promises of God really entail for one who believes, then seek out the church. I urge you, seek out brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't be afraid to ask the hard questions. Be honest if you're struggling with clinging to God's promises. And as you go about seeking answers and assistance, stand firmly on the promise of God that all who seek him with a humble heart will not be turned away. Brothers and sisters, let us now close in prayer and thank our God for his promises. O God and our Father, Lord, we thank you for this passage that we've read today. We thank you for the ways that you have worked in the lives of men such as Abram and Lot in order to demonstrate your complete and faithful sovereignty over all things. We thank you that even when we sin or take our eyes off you, you long suffer with us, that we would repent and be restored to you. We thank you that the blood of Jesus is a physical reminder of your promises, which are a firm foundation for us to stand upon as we face the trials and temptations of this life. Lord, help us to have the courage to yield up what is rightfully ours, not because we are ungrateful, but because we want to share the blessings that you have bestowed upon us with our neighbors and our enemies alike. Help us to look beyond what we see and not fall into temptation. And lastly, help us to rest in your plan when thoughts of doubt and anxiety come our way. Father, we believe you are a God who keeps all of his promises. You are not like a man who should lie. And the life and the death of your beloved son, we believe, is a testament to them. Lord, we pray all these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.